Good morning, everybody. Uh, it's been a while since uh, I've been up here. So for those of you that don't know me, my name is Tim Schoenfeld. I am a professor of psychology and neuroscience down the road at Belmont University. And I know that we have like corridor or like Commodore or corridor, as I like to call it, like over here. But just a special shout out to any Bruins that happen to make it in the audience this morning. I appreciate you. Um, I am thankful for you. And thank you for those that came out just to support uh, this venture to see what this is going to look like this morning. So uh, thanks for that. Um, I also just wanted to mention, I realized kind of late in the game, this is not a signal about later today. I have no feelings whatsoever about the city of Philadelphia or their eagles. I am neutral tonight. Uh, green is my son's favorite color, and he wanted to watch me this morning, and so I thought it would be fun for that. So go anybody tonight. <laughs> It doesn't matter. My team lost many, many weeks ago, so we're fine. Um, let's see here. I have the special privilege today of communicating a story that I think we all likely know, or at least we've heard once or multiple times, or if you grew up in the church in Sunday school that you've heard since you were likely a toddler. Uh, it's one of the most famous stories of the Bible, um, especially for children, because it this story is very straightforward and captivating. Uh, but my hope in telling the story of Daniel 6, of Daniel and the lion's den today, that we'll be able to see it with some fresh eyes, offer some fresh perspective a little bit. Um, and we're going to walk this story through start to finish, but I'm going to jump around, uh, really skip some major passages, and just kind of try to focus on what I would consider to be three main characters that we see uh, their stories in this text, and just some, some things that we can take home from, from them. Uh, we have a lot of story to get to, though, so kind of without further ado, if you're able, um, would you mind standing to read Daniel 6 with me? Um, I'll read from my Bible. We'll have the words up on the screen, so, um, but use whatever device or eyes that you want to for today. <clears throat> it pleased Darius to set over the kingdom 120 satraps to be throughout the whole kingdom, and over them three high officials, of whom Daniel was one, to whom these satraps would give account so that the king might suffer no loss. Then this Daniel became distinguished above all other high officials and satraps, because an excellent spirit was in him. And the king planned to set him over the whole kingdom. Then the high officials and the satraps sought to find a ground for complaint against Daniel with regard to the kingdom. They could find no ground for complaint or any fault, because he was faithful, and no error or fault was found in him. Then these men said, we shall not find any ground for complaint against this Daniel unless we find it in connection with the law of his God. Then these high officials and satraps came by agreement to the king and said to him, O King Darius, live forever. All the high officials of the kingdom, the prefects and the satraps, the counselors and the governors are agreed that the king should establish an ordinance and enforce an injunction that whoever makes petition to any god or man for 30 days, except to you, O king, shall be cast into the den of lions. Now, O king, establish the injunction and sign the document so that it cannot be changed according to the law of the Medes and the Persians, which cannot be revoked. Therefore, King Darius signed the document and injunction. When Daniel knew that the document had been signed, he went to his house where he had been, uh, whoops, where he had windows in his upper chamber open toward Jerusalem. He got down on his knees three times a day and prayed and gave thanks before his God as he had done previously. 
Then these men came by agreement and found Daniel, making petition and plea before his God. Then they came near and said before the king concerning the injunction, O king, did you not sign an injunction that anyone who makes petition to any god or man within 30 days except to you, O king, shall be cast into the den of lions? The king answered and said, The thing stands fast according to the law of the Medes and Persians, which cannot be revoked. Then they answered and said before the king, Daniel, who is one of the exiles from Judah, pays no attention to you, O king, or the injunction you have signed, but makes his petition three times a day. Then the king, when he heard these words, was much distressed, set his mind to deliver Daniel, and he labored till the sun went down to rescue him. Then these men came by agreement to the king and said to the king, Know, O king, that it is a law of the Medes and Persians that no injunction or ordinance that the king establishes can be changed. And the king commanded, and Daniel was brought and cast into the den of lions. The king declared to Daniel, May your God, whom you serve continually, deliver you. And a stone was brought and laid on the mouth of the den, and the king sealed it with his own signet and with the signet of his lord's, that nothing might be changed concerning Daniel. Then the king went to his palace, spent the night fasting. No diversions were brought to him, and sleep fled from him. Then at the break of day, the king arose and went in haste to the den of lions. As he came near to the den where Daniel was, he cried out in a tone of anguish. The king declared to Daniel, O Daniel, servant of the living God, has your God, whom you serve continually, been able to deliver you from the lions? Then Daniel said to the king, O king, live forever. My God sent his angel and shut the lions' mouths, that they have not harmed me, because I was found blameless before him and also before you, O king. I have done no harm. Then the king was exceedingly glad and commanded that Daniel be taken up out of the den. So Daniel was taken up out of the den, and no kind of harm was found on him, because he had trusted in his God. And the king commanded, and those men who had maliciously accused Daniel were brought and cast into the den of lions, they, their children, and their wives. And before they reached the bottom of the den, the lions overpowered them and broke all their bones in pieces. Then King Darius wrote to all the peoples, nations, and languages that dwell in all the earth, peace be multiplied to you. I make a decree that in all my royal dominion, people are to tremble and fear before the God of Daniel. For he is the living God, enduring forever, his kingdom shall never be destroyed, and his dominion shall be to no end, or to the end. He delivers and rescues. He works signs and wonders in heaven and on earth. He who has saved Daniel from the power of the lions. So this Daniel prospered during the reign of Darius and the reign of Cyrus the Persian. Long story. Let's take a seat. Uh, before I really get going, uh, uh, let's pray. Uh, Father God, I thank you for this morning. I thank you for the sunshine and for the clouds. I thank you for the cool air and also the warmth. Uh, God, I pray that you will speak to us with these words today. I uh, pray that you will resonate within our hearts some message of some truth that you have for us. Um, God, not my words, but yours uh, be said today. In your name we pray. Amen. As you said, we had 28 verses. It's a pretty long story. We do not have time to really go verse by verse today. So I want to kind of set the stage and then come back to this idea uh, that there's kind of three main characters within the narrative that I want to share some thoughts from. Uh, from the end of chapter 5, from what Mark spoke to us last week about, it, it states that Darius now takes over the kingdom of Babylon. Uh, and in many ways, commentators have stated that this is a transition from the Babylonian Empire to the Persian Empire. 
and that Darius may just have been a name that was used for the first year of Cyrus the Great's rule of that Persian empire. Whether or not these are two different people um, or they're the same person with two names, uh, what matters is that the Persian empire was vast and it needed many governors because of how large the regions were. And this is what a satrap was, just a governor of one of these individual regions. Daniel was so distinguished as an official over these governors that the text says in verse 3, he was set to be promoted to be over the entire kingdom. Naturally, his peers are jealous, and they try to scheme to bring Daniel down. An outsider becoming the right-hand man of the king? No way. But as we have seen in previous narratives of the book, Daniel was of exceptional character, and he was a faithful citizen, not just to God, but of the empire at large. So no fault within the law was found in him. <clears throat> Being king of the empire was seen as, as we've mentioned before, kind of quasi-divine, that he might be sort of a god king to his people. And so the officials come to Darius and propose to make a law that makes that status official. For the first 30 days of his reign, people would treat King Darius as a god king, and not be allowed to pray to any other being. This would include the God of Israel for Daniel. So this similarly silly idea that an emperor could sign a law and that not even he could revoke it, despite his God-king status, it appears to be this custom of the Persian Empire in the ancient Near East that there is this sort of inability for these decrees to change. And our modern ears are kind of like, this is kind of an absurd setup, but this is the setup. And in this setup, we can kind of see that there's an ingenious trap for Daniel. The stage is set. The officials have made the king, who loves Daniel, create an unbreakable law that puts Daniel between a proverbial rock and hard place. And where I really want us to start is in verse 10, uh, to walk slowly through the first character we want to focus on, Daniel himself. So verse 10 starts out like this. When Daniel knew that the document had been signed. When Daniel knew that the document had been signed. Daniel, as one of the highest officials in the land, was fully aware of this plan. He was fully aware of what it meant when the document was signed by the king in regards to its immutability or unbreakability. He knows what is going on. And if you or I were Daniel in this situation, or if we were trying to make a good movie about this story, at this point, we might have our own little schemes, our own little kind of shenanigans behind the scenes to try to figure out how am I going to turn the tables on my foes? How am I going to pull the rabbit out of the hat at the last minute? Or it's only 30 days. It's only a month. Like I can be sneaky and hide myself for 30 days. And since we're spitballing here, I mean, Daniel likely knew all of this was happening before it was happening. And so, I don't know, maybe like go to the king who listens to you before he signs the law and make him realize what's about to happen. So which of these options does Daniel actually choose? Now we continue in verse 10. It says, he went to his house where he had windows in his upper chamber open toward Jerusalem he got down on his knees three times a day and prayed and gave thanks before his God as he had done previously. He quietly, straightforwardly does exactly what the law has commanded him not to do. No coercion, 
no persuasion, just doing his business as usual, as if nothing had happened. The text says that Daniel prays three times a day. And by doing so, he follows this example that David had set before in the Psalms. We read in Psalm 55 from David's own words, but I call to God and the Lord will save me. Evening and morning and at noon, I utter my complaint and moan and he hears my voice. He redeems my soul in safety from the battle that I wage, for many are arrayed against me. As we've spoken many times in this uh, series, Daniel, not just being in exile, but being somebody who's for 60 years now has been a slave, has been taken advantage of, has been taken from his home, many things taken away from him. Um, These words of David, I think, will ring quite true for him as he prays three times a day for God to continue to deliver him. And he prays toward Jerusalem, which is in ruins. And some commentators I like say that in some ways this is a literal understanding where Solomon uh, in 1 Kings uh, states that foreigners should pray toward Jerusalem, towards the house of God, so that God would answer them and so that all nations would know the power and might of God. Now, Daniel is an Israelite, but in this case, he certainly is living outside of the town. He is an outsider, and he's praying towards not the intact house of God, more so the supposed ruins of it, but the idea that this prayer means something to him. I think there's, there's a lot of symbolism there. And we pick back up in verse 11. Then these men came by agreement and found Daniel making petition and plea before his God. A commentary note that I found interesting was that Daniel, in his upper chamber, upstairs, prays in front of a window, and we, I think even in the pictures, like we immediately see like this bay window open to the entire town that he is praying in public in front of everybody. And it was much more likely that in the ancient Near East that this window would have been very small and very high off the ground, enough to offer a sort of breeze but also protected so that a burglar couldn't just climb the wall like Aladdin and get in and steal everything. So in many ways, he should have been shielded from uh, this action from other people. And the fact that the other men find him in this way almost suggests that there was like this massive spy or sting operation going on whatever the equivalent of a telescope was back in the day. There was some other window through some other lattice work where they were viewing in on him. The rest of this part of the story is pretty straightforward. The law can't be changed. Daniel is found in violation of it. And so to the den of lions, he is sent. But before we move to the latter part of this story, I I just want to share the one phrase that kept sticking out to me over and over again as I was reading this passage Verse 10 says that Daniel got down on his knees to pray and give thanks. And the phrase that is said is, as he had done previously. There's a collection of brain areas called the basal ganglia that when I teach about, I like to sort of explain them as a sort of set of earmuffs or headphones around the core of the brain. That's where they're situated. And the basal ganglia do many things And we usually talk about them as being involved in movement and action. Not just any actions, but usually habitual, repetitive ones. Let me give you kind of an illustration, as I might do in class. 
uh, the first time that you perform any given action, and we'll use a very universal one that many of us have experienced. Let's say that you drive a car for the very first time. It's usually two things. It is extremely awkward because your brain has not learned how to move your muscles in the right way, in the right speed, in the right power yet. And also, because of that awkwardness, it requires a lot of like mental, conscious thought and effort just to make the movements that you need to do happen. It's like you have to will your body into specific actions when it's your first time. And the funny thing about practice and repetition is that the more you do something, the more that I'm behind the wheel over and over and over again, the more that my basal ganglia starts to learn on its own how to regulate the movements of the muscles of my hands and feet. So, the cool thing is, the basal ganglia is part of the subconscious area of our brain, meaning we are not consciously thinking or aware of all the nice things our brain is doing on our behalf for us. And so as the basal ganglia starts to take control over an action, we don't need to consciously think and process it. We just do it. We usually call this sort of thing muscle memory, but that's silly. Muscles don't have memory. Our brain does. More particularly, the basal ganglia does. We call these things procedural memories or habit memories, and these sort of habit memories of how to do certain things, certain ways, are really helpful for us. Again, remember what it was like the first time you had to drive a car, how you had to think deeply, not just about all the things out there on the road, but like the buttons and pedals and switches that you had to push and pull. Your brain is consciously, effortfully trying to will the muscles of your hands and feet to make a car go in an appropriate direction at the appropriate speed. And you barely have enough brain power left over to worry about cars and pedestrians and traffic lights, and weather if it's bad. But what happens? It's overwhelming the first time that we get behind a car in like an empty parking lot where like mostly nothing bad can happen. But the more we do it, we say it just becomes second nature. We just drive. And thank goodness, we have so much more conscious attention to pay to the road, and people, and other cars. You can thank your basal ganglia for that. <laughs> through repetition and through habit learning, it took control over the action of driving and left your conscious brain to worry about the details of everything else. It's like the whole reason why we can multitask is because some things just get done for us. I am so good at driving, I can have a conversation with another human being while I drive. Or music can be on, and I can hear it and listen to it and even sing along to it while I drive. Or if a podcast is on in the background, I like understand what they're saying while I drive. As one action becomes taken over by the basal ganglia, we say it becomes automatic. And as things become automatic, they release mental energy for the rest of your brain to do these other things. But at the same time, this automaticity of the basal ganglia can get you into trouble. 
Have you ever had this experience where you're supposed to go somewhere, like maybe the grocery store uh, on your way home from work, but you got so lost in your own thoughts or a song or a conversation that you just ended up at home and you, like, you didn't realize how you got there, but you certainly didn't go to the grocery store? <laughs> or if you're like me, you ended up at the Chick-fil-A drive-thru instead, and you're like, how, why, I don't understand. Your basal ganglia was being too automatic. It was making the decisions it usually makes on your behalf, and it just took you home. I hope I'm making my point across clear, and then we'll stop talking about the brain, I swear. I think the basal ganglia are a really cool set of brain parts that helps you become so good and so effortless at certain actions, you don't even have to think about them. We call the basal ganglia an action selector, of the brain, because when we develop these automatic habits, oftentimes your basal ganglia will just choose the right habit to match the situation in your life. It goes, oh, I've been here before. I know what we should do. And again, you don't need to think or weigh the pros and cons of the decision. Your brain just makes the habit come. So when Daniel writes that he falls on his knees and prays and gives thanks to his God, like he had done previously, this is what I think about. We could question, how could Daniel have had the courage in the face of certain death and punishment to violate the law so quickly? And sure, we have learned over the past few weeks that Daniel has had some amazing experiences where God has come in and rescued him or his friends, Rakshak and Benny, but also, I imagine that Daniel has spent 60 solid years doing exactly this practice every day, three times a day. Day after day after day after day, he's developed this habit that in response to anything happening in the world outside of him, he goes up to his upper chambers at morning and at evening and at noon and he prays. He doesn't have to think about it. He doesn't have to weigh the pros and the cons of the decision. He just does it. Thanks, basal ganglia, for making that choice so easy. It's automatic. I wonder what types of habits that we've developed that help us respond to the demands of our world. And really, all you have to do is just ask yourself if you feel a little bit stressed or a little bit overwhelmed, like where does your brain naturally, instinctually take you? Stereotypically, we talk about habits as like these bad habits, like I bite my nails or I smoke and I can't quit. Um, but anything you do repetitively over and over and over and over again becomes ingrained as a sort of go-to habit. It could be something relatively innocuous as turning on the TV and vegging out, or going to social media and just scrolling. It could also be something a little bit more sinister, like spending money in ways you shouldn't, or self-medicating with substances, or escaping online to dangerous content. I don't really need to create laundry lists, because I think we know ourselves pretty well, and we understand the instincts and the habits that we have and that we've developed. But a passage like this, it makes me question the habits that I've developed in my own life, Sometimes purely unhealthy habits that are never going to be good for me in any circumstance. Or even just kind of fine and okay habits 
but they're just not godly pursuits. You know, I, I wish that my habit was to go upstairs, to turn intentionally toward God, and pray and give thanks. I wish it was finding my Bible, opening it up to a page, and letting the Spirit speak to me as, as He might. I wish it was finding a praise song or a psalm and just speaking it out loud to God in that moment. But more often than not, those are the actions that I feel like I have to will myself toward and consciously, effortly bring myself to, not the things that are second nature or automatic for me. And when I think about this passage and I think about Daniel's story, I think about how much better my life would be if these were the habits that I practiced and repeated so that whatever happened in my own life, my habit would be to turn to God and not something else to cope. I could probably keep talking about this, but we're only halfway through our passage. I kind of need to pivot. So we're going to pivot to our second major character that the text focuses on, um, King Darius. And you might ask, we're leaving Daniel already, but we haven't even gotten to the lions yet. And the funny thing is, like, the lion's den is the most famous aspect of the story. But when, even when we were reading it earlier, have you ever thought about how little detail is actually given to Daniel inside the lion's den overnight? Uh, this is the picture of the story that always comes to our mind, especially when we're thinking about, like, children's stories or the cartoons. And I searched for a couple of them. I just want to put some up there like this, right? So it's just like, we're just hanging out with lions. That's exciting. They're, like, listening to him tell a story. It's like he's... He's like proselytizing to lions. Like, that's exciting. Like, what was the next one on here? Like, oh, he's like sleeping with lions. They're just hanging out. Like, he's got like a, his lazy boy lion. Like, you know, it's great. And what's the next one? And then like, oh, like this one, he's even got like the baby lion, like the cub that he's like rocking to sleep for the mama. Like, it's so great. And my favorite one's the last one. He's with Simba and like the cowardly lion. It's great, right? Yet, even though Daniel is the author of this story, he seems to care much more about how King Darius spends his night than how he spent his. I think it's probably important that Daniel is intentionally a somewhat minor character in his own story. And for the remainder of this chapter, he speaks one sentence. And the story follows Darius instead. As we pick back up in this story, if you're kind of following within the verses in verse 12, the plan of the officials is coming to fruition. Darius is tricked, and he has to send Daniel to capital punishment. We see in verse 14, Darius is distressed and actively tries everything in his power to rescue Daniel. He is the king of the most powerful empire on earth. Yet the story is clear to show how little power he actually has. The law was passed, and he becomes a spectator against even his own wishes. And perhaps acknowledging for the first time his own sense of powerlessness, the king executes the sentence, but not before saying a sort of prayer to Daniel's God. In verse 16, Darius's final words to Daniel were, May your God, whom you serve continually, deliver you. And I want to reread the following verses in 17 and 18 to continue. And a stone was brought and laid on the mouth of the den, and the king sealed it with his own signet and with the signet of his lords, that nothing might be changed concerning Daniel. Then the king went to his palace and spent the night fasting. No diversions were brought to him, and sleep fled from him. Man. I think there's so much power in these verses. 
For the first time in this story of Daniel and his friends in this book, the king of the empire is the one who prays to Yahweh, the God of Israel. And not just prays, but fasts in food and pleasure, spending all night awake in what I like to think distressed. We're not given these details, but given his disposition, I imagine he likely spends all night calling out to God to save Daniel. Even though we typically picture that's what Daniel's doing in the lion's den himself. And we know the end of the story. We know that Daniel is safe. What we don't know is ultimately why God sends his angel to protect him. Like Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, saving Daniel could have been a righteous act that demonstrates the power of God even over the most powerful rulers on earth. God could have been acting to preserve justice and correct an injustice against one of his faithful people. And this is just a what if, but what if God was empowering the faith of an outsider, a pagan king of all people, by acknowledging his humility and prayer. Rare in the history of mankind, and certainly among the pages of scriptures, do we find a powerful, secular ruler behave in such a humble way before God, particularly on behalf of another person. I can only imagine that the servants and the workers of the household, what they thought about as this was going on, that the king of the most powerful kingdom in the world a supposed God-man crying out to this other God, the God of a people that were the slaves of their kingdom. I don't think it's even really possible for us to understand how quite upside down that may have been. And daybreak hits, Darius rushes to the den and he says, Oh, Daniel, servant of the living God. We'll come back to that phrase. Has your God, whom you serve, continually been able to deliver you from the lions? And again, we know he is. We don't know exactly what happened in the den, other than the ambiguous, like, the angel did it. Levi and I were, Levi and I were talking a few weeks ago and just kind of speculating, and it's kind of the intentional mystery is fun here because you can just imagine what's going on. Um, our collective favorite, and perhaps I'm just speaking on behalf of Levi, but he's in the kids' ministry, so he can't stop me. Um, but our collective favorite was this possibility that Daniel was just chilling in a corner, and the angel was just creating a sort of Star Wars or Gandalf-like force field, and the angry lions were like pawing at it all night long, but like couldn't get past this invisible wall, because that's just kind of an awesome image. But either way, we know Daniel is preserved. His sentence had been carried out, but God, in his justice stifled the plans of the wicked. In a poetic way, perhaps, justice continues, this time from the king himself, as the wicked accusers meet the fate from the lions that they had planned for Daniel. Storybook ending, although if we wrote the story, we would probably omit the part about the wives and the children being eaten too, but shove that aside for now. The story isn't quite finished yet. Uh, King Darius, like Nebuchadnezzar before him, responds to this miracle by making a decree to respect and awe the God of Israel. And he writes a poem. For he is the living God, enduring forever. His kingdom shall never be destroyed, and his dominion shall be to the end. He delivers and rescues. He works signs and wonders in heaven and on earth. He who has saved Daniel from the power of the lions. 
He used this phrase before. I just want to acknowledge the power of some of this language, for he is the living God. In Hebrew, uh, this is the title, the Elohim Hayim. That's wrong. I am not well-versed in Hebrew. That's okay. Uh, That specific title is first seen in Deuteronomy 5, following the giving of the Ten Commandments. It's a specific title that I think is used to differentiate God, the living God, from the dead and useless gods of Egypt, but also the dead and useless gods that could have been idols for the people to follow instead with the second commandment. And this title is said many other times in the Old Testament, but I just want to mention one more in Jeremiah 10.10, written a brief time before the time of Daniel. But the Lord is the true God. He is the living God and the everlasting King. At his wrath, the earth quakes and the nations cannot endure his indignation. In In Jeremiah, this title is again a distinction between the God of Israel being over and above all other supposed gods and kingdoms of the world. So that Darius, again, the most powerful ruler on planet Earth, utters this title, signifies his own humility compared to the God of Daniel and of all Israel. And perhaps I think this might be the entire point of the whole chapter, that through the simple, habitual, faithful actions of one man, and God's justice, that the ruler of the earth came to see God for who he truly was and lowers himself in reverence. Verse 25 also makes it clear that given his position, King Darius makes this decree to all peoples, nations, and languages that dwell in all the earth. This is not just a private or even local proclamation of humility from the God King Darius. This is a megaphone announcement from the most powerful man on the planet to everyone in the known empire. Like, I struggle with proclaiming the glory of God to my next door neighbor or my coworker, let alone the entire world. And when I think about the reasons for why I'm not so forthcoming or willing to glorify God so publicly, I don't know. Am I worried about what others might think? Am I worried about offending others for being too pushy? Am I just not concerned with the eternal fate of others? And that sounds terrible. But when I think about why Darius felt the need to make the exclamation that he did, I feel like he experienced God so purely and so unadulteratedly that it was the only thing he could do. It was the only thing that made sense. And when I think about this, how I hope and pray that you and I may experience God in the same way, that the only thing that we can do is proclaim his name to the ends of the earth for the glory of God. I said there were three characters. I want to invite the band back up here because we have one more that I want to mention. And don't worry, it'll be brief. The third and final character I want to mention isn't explicitly mentioned in this chapter, but is foreshadowed. Jesus was without blame, a man faithfully habitual in prayer to God, but in his popularity was jealously accused and tried by his peers. Jesus passively allowed this injustice to incur, willingly being sent to his own death. 
A stone was rolled over his tomb to seal his body, but at the break of dawn, the stone was rolled away only to not find a dead man, but one very much alive. His accusers were judged, and the end, the name of God was forever glorified across the world. This is the Savior that we serve. How cool is it that in stories like Daniel, we see the connection and we see a little bit of the foretelling of who the true king of the whole earth really is.